Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickett. Hey, today we've got Dave Shoy with us. Dave is an accomplished Navy pilot, Naval Academy graduate, and outstanding business leader who I've known for the better part of a decade. Um, he also currently runs a flight department for a, a highly respected Fortune 500 media company based up in New York. Hey, Dave. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. So you were just uh, so you've got two big big jets up there, and I know you guys just went through a big uh, a big acquisition process. How uh, how important are your airplanes to the overall business? The the airplanes are critical. Um, the acquisition process was a top consideration for the C-suite and making sure that we're managing the life cycle of the assets. Uh, so, you know, 40% international flying, these guys need to go where they need to go when they need to get there. And when our dispatchers are managing the, the air transport plan, um, we, we benchmark, Hey, what would this trip require to do it commercial or to charter these legs? Or, you know, we, we benchmark all of that and then take it to the boss or, you know, the, the principal executive on the trip and let them know what's going on and how this benefits them. So that's, that's a regular part of our drill. So your boss is a pretty high profile guy. And, yeah. you know, and, and he's had some pretty high profile executives and obviously, you know, flying two big cabin jets, it's a, it's a big capital investment. You know, let's, you know, put the cost aside. How much is the ancillary stuff important? You know, convenience, the security, um, you know, just the flexibility of doing, you know, what everybody needs to do to make commerce happen. Does that play really more into the 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 decision about to have the jets then you know the you know with with the cost being a you know tertiary consideration absolutely uh when we consider the time available for these folks to get where they need to be uh you just can't it just doesn't there's no other solution that's going to work um you know we've had times where We've got multiple executives going in different directions and just based on the timing of the request and where our planes were, uh, you know, I've had to say, hey, I, I got to put you on uh, first class because we, we don't have a good sense or a, a evaluation of the available charter to send you to point A to point B. So you're going to go on first class on this trip. And man, is it painful, not just because they don't like doing it, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, so that's just the flat logistics part of it. Um, the security is another matter. So we, we definitely have some folks that, that, uh, are in uh, a niche where, you know, a lot of people are watching them and where they go. And so to be able to not, not exactly conceal it, but control it more is definitely a significant, uh, consideration. 
So you, you're more worried, not necessarily about you know the security of you know, airlines and airports. You're more so you're more concerned about the security of who knows, you know, who knows where we're going. Sure. Who we're seeing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's that, that's an interesting point. What do you think about you know? To that being said, you, you know, are you you guys blocking your you, you blocking your tail numbers out there, and uh, do you, you do you worry about flight aware very much, or no, not so much? We we do block our tail numbers, but uh, the, you know, if you're if you know what you're doing, there's other resources out there, and you can certainly get to the data. Um, you know, I, I would say on a scale of one to ten. Uh, with 10 being the, the companies that are absolutely most concerned about that, you know, we're probably a, a seven. You know, I know there's other companies and other departments, you know, my peers that are, are keenly sensitive on, on that and trying to manage that part of the equation. Yeah, I got you. What's your big, I mean, how many, how many pilots do you, how many pilots do you have? We have eight pilots, uh, four for each airplane. Uh, I'm the ninth pilot. I fly about a, a half of a schedule compared to the rest of the pilots. But, and, you, uh, and you said about 40% of your, your business is international. Correct. Yeah, we fly we a lot of Europe, uh, a lot of Pacific Rim. Um, you know, thankfully, we're not, at the moment anyway, anything could change, but we're, we're not doing the Middle East. We're not doing Russia. We're not doing Africa. Um, a little bit of South America, but that's, that's the gist of it. And, um, you know, thankfully, most of the places we go are pretty well supported from an aviation standpoint. Uh, so when you're when when you're taking on your on your your flights, you know, typical passenger load: three executives, four executives, full 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 boat. Three, usually three, would be the average. Um, sometimes it is, you know, just the CEO or just the chairman. Um, we have. You know, it's a, a portfolio company, so there's lots of junior CEOs that do have access to the plane. Uh, so we try to manage that and, and, you know, maximum utility on the plane for all of the executive staff. So we do have trips where it's just one. Um, and sometimes there's, there's guests. So depending on, you know, what the event is, what the meeting is, it could be a business team that is full boat. We probably do that uh, twice a quarter on each airplane. Um, and that can be, you know, that has its own challenges with just the, the amount of food and the amount of people and the amount of luggage and, you know, everything. It's a, it's a logistics challenge to be sure. Yeah, I got you. So no, Hey, so, you know, for, for everybody out there, so you and I have known each other a long time and, you know, you're an aviation you know manager now, but you know, what, what people don't realize is that you've got a really strong business background as well. A Naval Academy graduate with an MBA, so you understand how to run the numbers. And now that you you see how important the jets are to your company, you know, what do you you know, do you think that these activist investors that are coming in, and you know, I think about GE and some of the other some of the other companies that are coming in and targeting the jet, do you think that they're misguided and and, and being short sighted, or yeah, you know, what's your opinion from a, more of a business standpoint? I, I do think there's a lot of misplaced uh, scrutiny. I shouldn't say scrutiny, but concern, right? Scrutiny is fine to, to make sure you're looking at the details and evaluating if the value proposition is there. Um, but, you know, when that article hit the Wall Street Journal about GE sending a chase plane uh, to follow around Jeff Immelt to make sure that, you know, he had an asset, 
uh, and it cost the company an additional $250,000. Uh, you know, my CFO called me and said, tell me we don't do this. And I said, of course, we don't do that. Uh, but I did go back to him and I said, look, if, if the chairman is doing a around the world or a trans Asia trip and sealing the deal on three or $4 billion worth of multi-year contracts, maybe that's worth it to make sure he gets there. $250,000 of operating costs on an asset you already own to make sure that he gets there with, you know, absolute certainty. Um, I'm, I certainly can't sit here where I am and I don't think an activist investor can sit in their chair and 100% armchair quarterback that to say it was not a good business decision. Yeah, no. And, 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 and I agree with you. And you, you take a guy like Jeff Immel, you know, incredibly high profile CEO or, you know, take some of your other high profile CEOs, you know, Tim Cook over at Apple or. Um, you know, Microsoft and, you know, you know, Gates over at Microsoft, et cetera. And, and you say, okay, you know, we're going to put them on a jet and we're going to send them to somewhere. You know, if that jet breaks and it takes a couple of days to fix it, which is not an uncommon scenario or, you know, and not, a, I should say, not an unreasonable scenario. You know, you're not going to put them on Delta to fly them home. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, maybe there was some logic to the to the GE thing. I, I thought it was a very short sighted decision as well. And you know, now all of a sudden GE gives up their flight department, but now they you know they're buying you know, all sorts of charter and fractional, and you know the costs have not gone away. They've just been you know reallocated. But right, they, and they're probably bigger, and probably bigger, um, which is uh, which is crazy. So yeah, I, I I thought it was a very short sighted you know decision as well. Um, yeah, but everybody's crying, you know, on, on, on another issue, everybody's crying about, you know, pilots. You've got uh, Jet Aviation over there saying that a, you know, large cabin Gulfstream 650 pilot may command 300000 bucks in the not near, you know, not too distant future. Are you, are you guys finding that uh, finding really good pilots is, is becoming an exercise? Thankfully, knock on wood. We, uh, we have not had any turnover since I've been here. I've been here for three years, a little over three years. Uh, we have a great group of people, and we have a, a good team dynamic that uh, helps, right? So uh, for the most part, I think pilots feel like, uh, you know, their, their value proposition is not being uh, acknowledged at the higher levels of the company, and that's generally what causes somebody to leave their job other than a, a huge pay disparity, right? So the airlines are, are, they're sucking up all the available pilots and salaries are going up. We've all seen that. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me is to manage the overall situation of the job because I can't compete with those salaries. There's no way. Um, you know, when I look at the data, I participate with a Fortune 50 company uh, for a compensation survey that goes across about 70 flight departments that are all, say, Fortune 200-ish. And uh, we compare notes, we benchmark duty times, hard days off, benefits, uh, long-term comp, you know, deferred comp. Um, we take a look at all of that. And so, 
since I got here and started doing that, you know, in general, our company pays at about the 55th to 70th percentile range. And I've shared that with, with our C-suite and explained that, hey, you have us flying at the 90th percentile as far as how much we fly, where we fly, and the caliber of service that is required. So that's a mismatch. Um, that doesn't mean I've been successful in getting you know, a sweeping pay increase for the whole department. Uh, but I have been successful in getting some smaller things that, that do actually make a difference and don't cost the company quite as much money. So uh, starting this year, uh, for all of our flight crew, if you're on a commercial itinerary to pre-position or come home or whatever you're doing, if the flight time on your itinerary is more than five hours, you fly business class. doesn't matter if it's domestic, international, uh, you're flying business class for those, for those trips. And, you know, for our crews that are doing 12 to 15 legs, whether it's company or commercial a month, uh, that's, that's a big deal. You know, that makes a big difference to be able to sit in the front of the plane and try to get some rest or be more comfortable instead of being jammed in with your kneecaps up against the seat in front of you. Yeah, no, uh, no, no doubt. What, uh, you know, are you, you know, on the recruiting side of the house, what do you, you know, what are you looking for? You know, when you're out, uh, you know, I know you don't have a huge turnover in your, in your department, but you know, if you are out recruiting a pilot, what are the, what are the biggest traits that, you know, you and your bosses want to see? Yeah. Good question. Uh, we have a solid group of people right now that, really come to the job with a passion for what they do, a passion for supporting the people that they're with. So great team ethic, no job too small, always willing to help out, you know, your, your teammate when it's required. Uh, a lot of expertise, seasoned professionals, everybody that we have is a seasoned international captain. We don't have co-pilots. Um, and, you know, I have kind of, reflects my background. Everybody has a ground job like we did in the Navy. Uh, so none of the pilots here just fly and then turn in the keys and go home. Everybody's got, got a ground job of some sort, something, some program that they're, they're the administrator of. And that includes interfacing with vendors, vendor relationships for different parts of the department, uh, helping me with the budgeting. Hey, what should I expect for X or Y? Um, and that that dovetails into them being happy because it's it's not just me setting the terms and the situation of the department. They know that well if something's messed up, it, it's probably their fault too, right? Um, so I need people that can do that and that can can swing in that kind of an environment, uh, not the person that's just going to fly and go home. Do you, um, do you do you find those skill sets are easy to find, harder to find? Well, thankfully, with you know military connections, I do lean heavily on on that network and keep tabs on a handful of folks that I know are getting ready to retire or might be ready to move on from flying military hardware to the civilian workforce. Um, and you just got to find the the right the right person that is a, a lifelong learner, sort of that intellectual curiosity, and uh, you know tap into that. Uh, the other thing that's really important, at least for me as a department manager, is making sure that they have a plan three years, five years, 10 years, and you know, they're, 
they're on track to go somewhere, whether it's stay here, likely not, but uh, I articulate to them, hey, I want to help you do that. And I can do that credibly. I saw a lot of that in the military. You probably did too, where you have, uh, you know, your commanding officer says, hey, you're going to go do X or Y, you know, for your next tour. And you say, well, I don't really want to do that. That doesn't really fit with my plan. Well, you know, tough cookies, go do it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of animosity, I think, in some places when, when the boss says to you, go do it, and you say no, well, you just burn that bridge, you know. So it's, it's better for me. You get more, bees with, get more bees with honey, right? So if I can tell my dispatcher, hey, if you want to go to a bigger department to be a dispatcher for six planes, you know, I will help you do that. And I think that's my, my responsibility, helping our people grow. And, and they, they hear that and they believe that. So I get more, I get more work out of them by doing that. You feel like, um, you know, look, you can go to American Airlines, you can go be a pilot at American Airlines and, you know, fly right seat in the 737, eventually fly left seat, move up from there. You know, what do guys, what's, what's more interesting to, what's more interesting to the pilots that you've talked to? Is it you know longevity, pay, equipment, technology, you know, being involved in a you know, in an operation, you know, being able to take ownership in an operation? Um, you know, what's what's motivating pilots now and to you know, making them step up to be more of a leader versus a you know driver? I think that's a that's a might be a nature versus nurture. That's that's the hardest thing for me to be able to find when I talk to somebody that might be a prospective hire in say two or three years. I mean, I have one, one of our pilots is going to retire next year. So I'm getting ready to manage that. Um, but you know, I want to find the people that, that, uh, that want to do some interesting stuff that want to do other things other than fly. You know, as you know, as an aviator in the Navy, it's a collateral duty. It's not your primary duty. And, uh, you know, we have a really interesting book of business. You never know where the boss is going to say, we're going to fly next. I mean, since I've been here, we've flown into Burma. Uh, we've flown into Bhutan and the Himalayas, uh, Vietnam. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And I don't think you're going to get that in an airline. Right. Um, but uh, I definitely have to find the people that are, uh, have a very comprehensive view about what they do and what they like to do. And uh, it's, if somebody just wants to fly and turn in the keys at the end of the, the fly day, uh, that's great. More power to them. That's an airline. Uh, that's an airline job. That's the person that should be placed in an airline job. And, and, you know, same thing. I'm more than happy to to contribute to them getting there, but that's not the kind of person that I need to hire. Yeah, no, I got you. Um, you know, and I got to think that your guys probably enjoy when they say, hey, we're going to Burma for the first time. Yeah. Somebody in your flight department takes ownership of that trip, or maybe it's the captain who's going to be flying. He takes ownership of that trip and does all the research and gets all the handling and overfly permits, et cetera, everything you need. And now he's got responsibility for it. Does That's that right. make them step up? Yep, Absolutely. You know, they they uh, they know that it's going to be their their butt in the seat when they go fly in there. So they got to take care of the details leading up to that. Yeah. So type ratings are expensive. 
Are you, when you're out recruiting, are you saying, hey, we want to, we want a rated pilot or are you willing to, are you willing to send them to school if you find the right, the right person? Yeah, I don't care about that. I'll send them, I'll send them to school and, uh, you know, knock on wood, what we've seen so far, at least here in this, this department, you know, there are training contracts or there's employment language. Hey, you got to stay for a year. You're going to prorate the $75,000 that we just spent for your type rating. most of the time, I think that stuff I've been told it doesn't really hold up in court if somebody really wants to, you know, put the iron in the fire or you know, feet to the coals on that one. Um, for us, it's really just a handshake. Hey, I'm going to spend $75,000 on you. Um, I'm going to pay you a little bit less. I'm not going to pay you $75,000 less because that math just doesn't work out. But, you know, I'll guarantee you a pay raise when you finish your first year, which is not unlike the probationary period that you have in an airline. Mm-hmm. You got to get through that first year after your IOE before they say, okay, good, we'll, we'll give you the full pop paycheck now. So we do a little bit of that, but it's really just, you know, let's shake hands. You look me in the eye and tell me you're committed to being here you know, at least for that year. And uh, so far that seems to work out. For a guy, for a guy to get hired in your flight department – what's the, what's the minimums? You know, we really don't have any minimums, you know, so we have one junior captain who's only got, uh, 2,800 hours. Um, very sharp young guy, hot on the technology. He is our, uh, electronic flight bag and, and Apple iPad, everything, uh, guru and knows how to interface with all of that stuff and make it work in the plane. Um, and you know, we hired him, that was three years ago and he was only at, I think about 1900 hours when we hired him. We did hire him as a, as an SIC, as a co-pilot. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, it really depends on the whole package. So I would say no minimums. Um, on average though, our, our guys are all pretty seasoned. You know, I mean, I might be the, one of the lower end at about 5,700 hours for me. Um, but you know, we'll take a, we'll t- have a conversation with anybody out there. What, 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 you know, so the, the junior pilot, I'm laughing because we've been having the millennial, we've been having the millennial conversations, uh, sure elsewhere. And so you, you hire a millennial pilot who's really strong on the tech side. Other than the tech, what did he bring to the table that, that attracted you? So, I'll be upfront. He was not, I didn't hire him. My previous director hired him, okay. um, but I can't say I would have made a different decision. We actually hired him from our training provider and he was teaching on the platform and he was a really good instructor, uh, had a, a really great uh, cockpit demeanor, good personal skills, great crew coordination to be able to articulate a position about a particular malfunction that might be a little bit debatable until you sort out the, uh, the exact foundational details and what your next course of action is going to be. So those, all those uh, characteristics uh, had some weight to it in deciding to hire them. Um, I've heard the millennial arguments too. We do talk about that as far as, okay, they've got all this great technology. They follow the magenta line, but do they necessarily have the six skills and the composure there uh, for the, the deep foundational skills of flying? And uh, to that end, we have a pretty robust uh, 
sort of extracurricular training program where we do upset recovery training every year. Uh, I have money in the budget for all of our pilots to go spend five to 10 hours every year in a tailwheel plane and just go do some good solid stick and rudder flying. Uh, and, and that keeps everybody, I think, uh, on top of the manual skills versus the, you know, the automation. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because the one thing that just scares the hell out of me is I look at the Asiana oh. guys into San Francisco <laughs> and you find out there's 40,000 hours of collective flight time up in the cockpit and not one of them knows how to do an uncoupled approach right. into a 10,000 foot runway on a clear day. Right. Um, you, know, you know, does that scare you? I mean, when you, when you think about the caliber of pilot or are you know, are they pilots or are they just systems managers out there yeah it's uh it's definitely a dilemma it's a an incredible debate right now because i mean with my background in the navy it's a lot of manual flying so when i got in this plane which is you know the bombardier global is a premier state of the art you know, near state of the art now with the G650 and the coming of the Global 7000. But, you know, the our planes have the Rockwell Collins Vision Flight Deck, you know, two, you know, across the board, you've got three and then one. So four huge TV screens, you know, looking at your computers with a mouse that goes across them and you're just clicking with the mouse. And that's how you need to fly the plane to use all the automation, all the tools that are there to help you in the, the most difficult of times, whether it's the weather or some part of the aircraft is not operating as, operating as advertised, you need to know how that automation works. But, and in order to do that, for it to be second nature, you got to use the automation all the time. But the flip side of that is your hand flying skills do deteriorate. They are perishable. And so you may not necessarily be as prepared as you could be for a situation when the automation doesn't work as advertised. And so when you're flying to, across the, you know, when you're flying across the Atlantic or the Pacific, are you guys playing a lot of, you know, going back to our Navy days, are you, are you doing the same thing we used to do? Hey, what if, you know, a lot of what if scenarios and keeping yeah. each other sharp? Yep. Yeah. That's that. I mean, that's when I'm on a flight, that's what I do. I can't say that every crew does that, but I think in general, our, most of our pilots are, hey, let's use this time to, to do something that's, you know, really productive. Um, you know, but the, you know, when I have a day where I'm doing three legs and the weather's bad and we're on automation most of the time, and then the next day is a beautiful day and I say, okay, I'm going to hand fly a lot of this, you know, even just in a few days of, you know, one day is mostly automation, the next day is hand flying, you feel it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's in a department where, where I advocate, Hey, you know, go fly a glider. You know, I mean, these, we have, we have resources. I budget it. Like go spend $2,000 to go to Mammoth Lakes, California and fly a glider for three days and, and learn something new, you know? Right. That's uh, pretty interesting that you, that's pretty interesting you do that. And uh, pretty forward thinking. Are, are other flight departments doing that as well? Or are you, do you feeling like you're kind of unique? Uh, there are other departments that do it. I mean, I've, I've benchmarked with a handful of other of my peers to say, how do you sell that to the CFO? Um, you know, 
And the way that works is I just describe, you know, tell the story of Air France, tell the story of Air Asiana, tell the story of, you know, other mishaps, Colgan Air, and go, hey, I don't want this to happen because our guys are not prepared. And I'm talking about spending $2,000 a pilot. Yeah. You know, that's just like, it's, 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 uh, it's jump change in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So when you, when you put it that way, it, it tends to, you know, all right, all right, all right. They kind of, you know, home run, let's, we'll let you do it. And don't, let's not talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Hey, let, let's switch gears a little bit. So you're, uh, you know, your company is very technology. You know, it's a leader in the tech space and everybody, you know, it's pretty well known. It's a leader in the tech space. What's the customer dynamic on the airplane? You've got a bunch of, uh, Tech smart passengers on there. Um, what are their expectations? Good question. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the generations. So we, we do have a very diverse C-suite age-wise. And certainly the, the young up-and-coming techs, say, that are under the age of 40, um, you know, their expectation is primarily connectivity. Um, the more senior folks, it starts to be less about connectivity and, and more about other creature comforts, I guess. Um, but they're learning the, the importance of the connectivity too, and it's not just the phone. So you know, the, the connectivity becomes the go, no go item on, on the airplane. You know, that, that is, Hey, does this work? No, the, the satellite, antenna is not operating as advertised and so we can't get to the internet uh, they will think twice about whether we should move to another asset or patrol or you know postpone the trip um, and we've made significant capital investments on the satcom side to try to you know give them the fastest possible speeds uh, airborne and so that's been a very interesting uh, deep dive into satellite technology uh, you know, VPNs, bandwidth, speed, all of that. You know, I, I know more about that now than I ever cared to know, but. I hear you. Uh, it, it's, it, I, I was talking to some guys at Cobham not too long ago and the, the technology is moving, it's moving fast. And, you know, it's almost a shame you, you find out, Hey, I just spent all this money on a, on a piece of a uh, piece of equipment only to find it's obsolete in a year. Um, yeah, and it's like a seven hundred thousand dollar install that that could become obsolete in three years. So yeah. you're almost changing that stuff out at the same pace as you're changing out the leather and the carpet. How do you amortize that? Hey, do, do your pilot? You know, now do your flight crews interact? You know, how how does how do your flight crews and your passengers interact, or do they? Is there like a hey, nice to see you, come on board, and we're out of your way. That's a little passenger dependent. Um, we we definitely have a formal protocol. We do not, uh, to get down into the details, we do not wear airline uniforms with epaulets and, you know, captain stripes and all that. We just wear a, a, a dark conservative business suit, you know, but we do stand at the steps and say, welcome aboard. You know, I'm captain so-and-so and, -so and uh, let us know what you need. Um, but some of the passengers that are routine flyers, you know, we, they may sort of break the barrier a little bit and, and, uh, that's just their personal style. Um, you know, one of our previous principals who's gone off to another very high profile technology company, 
you know, he was the master of being able to fly a trip with any of our eight pilots and, and, you know, how's your wife, Bridget? And, you know, how are the kids today? And, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's very different, uh, depending on the passengers. Um, but, uh, definitely I think we feel in general, we feel like we're appreciated. That's for sure. There you go. So go, you know, on the technology side, you and I were talking about SACCOM Direct. I know you're on their customer advisory board. What is the technology that everybody wants and needs to have in their airplane? Yeah, right now we're, uh, it's really about the satellite communications. Um, and you hear about that from the airlines, you know, that we've all had experience with uh, the connectivity on airline flights. Uh, which originated with, you know, GoGo in-flight, which is an air-to-ground system. Uh, but now with the percentage of international operations, you know, GoGo is only available domestically. Um, you know, you got to have an air-to-air solution. Uh, so we're looking at that. Um, you know, we have what's called KA Band, which is the, the fastest system available right now for the business aviation uh, arena. Um, but there's limitations there too, that, uh, you know, you have to set the expectation with the executives, Hey, you're not going to be able to surf like you do at home. Cause we're only going to get about 10 megabytes a second. You know, you're not going to get 60 or a hundred like you do at home or the landline. Um, and there's airplane limitations, you know, depending on where the satellite is. And, you know, if we get a vector to turn to get on course and that turns away from the satellite and the satellite antenna can only go down so far, you're going to get a blip there. And, you know, I've been flying and I get an email on my phone because yes, my phone is connected to the Wi-Fi, and I get a, an email. Why is the internet not working? You know, so get the plane on autopilot and email the boss who's in the back of the plane and say, we'll, we'll take a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to email the boss who's in the back of the plane. Yeah. That's funny. I hear you. Um, what else? I mean, what else is uh, so SATCOM is the uh, SATCOM is the big thing, and you know, what else in the cabin as far as like cabin management, entertainment systems, etc. Is there anything that's uh, the big in demand? Sure. Player yeah, we've, with our two planes, we've got two different generations of cabin management systems. They're both made by Rockwell Collins, uh, but the the newer one is a fiber optic system. Uh, with a specific uh, architecture that allows um, all of the screens and all of your audiovisual sources to talk to each other individually, um, and you can put, you know, any any source can go to any screen, whether it's in the back uh, or in the front or in the galley. Um, We've got Apple TV on there. Um, we've got a sling box. So you can stream whatever you want to stream. You can do a business meeting. You know, somebody can be in the back stateroom if, if they need to be sleeping and kind of having some quiet time. And you can still have a business meeting up front. Um, that is the state-of-the-art uh, technology. And uh, not all the planes have that. That's actually called the Venue System by Rockwell Collins. Uh, you know, that's the $700,000 install. If you don't have it, most of the airplanes coming out of Gulfstream and Bombardier right now have that, you know, that's the, the industry standard now, but with all the used inventory that's out there, uh, that's something that people are strongly considering if they're going to say, all right, we're going to keep this used airplane for another five years. 
you know, it's, it's going to allow you to do the things that are expected of your, by your customers. Uh, and it's also going to affect your terminal value when ultimately you decide to sell it. So. Gotcha. So you're flying across the Pacific at what speed? Eight, seven, nine, oh, not in the global, the global cruise is typically eight, five. Um, you know, we can do up to eight, eight, but, uh, that's fuel dependent as you know. Uh, so usually it's eight, five for us. Um, but you know, we can fly at eight, five and then still do 12 hours, 11 hours. That gets you pretty far. Does the supersonic business jet, if you're doing Mach 8.5, Gulfstream 500, 600, going to be doing 9.0, does the SSBJ start to make, you know, make sense? Or do you think it's just uh, another $30 million? That, um, that's debatable. I think it, that is highly customer dependent. So, you know, our, our number one executive that we fly around, I don't think that's attractive to him because he's about the the creature comforts in the space and he wants to be able to have his guests or his business team up front. And then he's going to retire to the stateroom in the back and do his own thing. You know, so the, the supersonic business jet, that's a much tighter cabin is not going to be interesting to him. Um, I think some of the younger generation of executives, it will be interesting because they, they want to, you know, get where they're going, do what they got to do. And then, you move on to the next place, whether that's home or not. You know, I mean, we have very different uh, customers across our portfolio of companies, and you know, the 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 main business group from one of the companies is, uh, you know, four guys. They they want to get on the plane with pizza and beer and do their business planning uh, all the way to Europe or to Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, they they hop out. They have. 36 hours on the ground to handle all the business meetings and business entertainment and networking and camaraderie, et cetera. And then they get back on the plane and they just want to sleep and, and get home as soon as they can. So for them, the supersonic business jet might be appealing, you know, um, other folks, I think it's, it's just as much about the journey. So if it's just as much about the journey getting there, then the larger cabin is going to be, is going to be the solution. Gotcha. So, 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 Dave, you're getting, you know, you're getting approached by everybody. You know, you obviously fly two Bombardiers. You, you, you've been working with the Gulfstream. I'm sure you've, you, you, sat with the Gulfstream guys and the Cessna guys and, and and all the other providers out there. Who's doing a great job in the industry? I mean, who do you think is really, you know, you know Bombardier and Gulfstream aside? You know, Satcom Direct. We talked about those guys a little bit. Who, you know, who out there is is really impressing you? Well, Satcom Direct would be my favorite. They're on the top of the list. Um, Jet Support, JSSI. Those guys do a great job in handling what they need to handle for the engine programs. Uh, there's a handful of consultants out there. Uh, Air Lex, Amanda Applegate, is a phenomenal attorney. Um, I think from a vendor standpoint, the most important thing is to, uh, to be reliable, um, to use uh, vernacular from flying that you, know, you and I are familiar with, brief what you're going to fly and fly what you briefed. Uh, if you can do that as a vendor, we're going to stand by you. Uh, it's, it's when things get off of that path, whether you know, cost is constantly changing, schedule is constantly changing. Those are the two biggest things, right? If you can come to me and say, here's what it's going to cost, here's the performance we're going to give you, and we're going to deliver it on this date, 
if you can stick to that or certainly give as much advance notice of changes, um, you know, that's, that's a good, that's a good vendor, right? But it's, it's when you can't articulate and stick to those things and be reliable that things start to be a problem. Um, and you know, there's companies have different, uh, perspectives on where they're going to put their emphasis. So there are companies out there that, you know, they make a, a great product and this is whether it's a, a vendor or a subcomponent component maker or, or actual aircraft maker. Um, you know, Hey, this is an awesome product. Take it or leave it. And, you know, you can deal with it uh, with whatever happens. And, you know, we might throw you some customer support. We might not, you know, and then there's other companies that, uh, and SACCOM direct is one of them. Uh, you know, they put up amazing customer support 24 seven, somebody's on the phone, you know, somebody will email you back reliably with the data or the solution or the information that you need. And, you know, with a group like that behind it, even if their product was maybe slightly less in performance than a competitor, you know, we would be more inclined to go with a vendor like that because I look at it as a business relationship. You know, when, when we make decisions, it's not, well, okay, this product and this product's going to be in the plane for five years. I look at it as, do I want to be a business partner for five to 10 years with this company? Um, you know, sometimes you don't have a choice. That's a, I mean, that's a good point. You look at it and say, look, you know, you, you guys bought your, you, you, you just bought your, uh, your global, you put a new interior in it. Um, you told me that process went pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, you know, I want to be a business partner with this company for the next five years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just want them to be, t- to take care of me. Do they get, do they get that mentality? Some do. Um, some do. For example, we, we had our refurb done at Standard Aero in Springfield, Illinois, and, from the work that we did and some of the initial hurdles with uh, the project management side, once we were on contract and executing, um, you know, their team, you know, at, you know, I've got a background from Sikorsky and also from being on the, the Navy side of some contracts, uh, you know, earned value management reporting is huge with all your DOD stuff, right? That is excruciating detail of cost schedule and performance. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't expect a mom and pop vendor to do that or even some of the other, I mean, some of the OEMs don't even do that, that I've, you know, the experience that I have now in the last five years in the business world. Um, But to sit with the folks at Standard Arrow and say, look, the reporting needs to look like this. I gave them some examples of the data that I needed and the format and they said, yes, sir. And they fixed it. And, And that is, you know, their team is actually looking and improving to make that their standard deliverable. So if a company is going to go, you know, approach the situation like that and be willing to learn, we're going to stand by them. Yeah. So you, you want a partner, not a one hit wonder. Yeah. Um, and as the guys at Standard Arrow once told me, hey, every time a DOM brings a, an airplane to our facility, a lot of times he feels his job is on the line. I, th- I think when you when you put it that way, it's like, hey, I got to go talk to my boss and explain to them why things went swimmingly well or not so well. Um, it's hard when a it's it's hard when somebody puts you in that situation on the the not so swimmingly well side of the house. Correct. 
So what are the great things that are happening in the industry? What do you, you know, what do you, what's got you really optimistic? I think the, the technology is always interesting. I'm not a tech, uh, a techie or a tech head, but it is pretty amazing when you look at, uh, you know, the global 7,000, what's, what's going to happen when that airplane hits the market. Um, you know, the reach that it's going to have. And obviously the technologies that they put in place, whether it's the airframe, the avionics, uh, or customer support, you know, that all trickles down to the smaller airplanes uh, eventually. So that's exciting. Um, you know, the world is is getting ever smaller. It's, it's not, you know, that's perpetual. Um, and the number of airplanes that are in the sky at any given moment and the technologies that have to be put in place to manage that is, is incredible. Um, you know, that's a techno- technology piece that is a challenge with some of the more senior aviators, um, you know, trying to manage the constantly changing navigational requirements and equipment just to go across the Atlantic. Um, it's, uh, it's eye-watering sometimes, but uh, it's a necessary part of the process because you've got thousands of airplanes, uh, you know, going across the sky with, you know, 1,100 knots of closure right in the middle of the Atlantic. And if somebody's not in the right place, you know, it's a disaster in, in the making, right? So yep. um, the, the pace of technology for all that is really exciting. What scares you? not being able to achieve what you need in that exact arena. You know, I mean, I fly out of Teterboro uh, most of the time and that is the busiest private airport in the world. Uh, I think it, it uh, shares that hat on and off with Van Nuys, California, uh, North of LA. Yep. And uh, man, the number of airplanes and your proximity to heavy jets coming in and out of Newark, um, you know, it's probably once a month that somebody gets a flight violation coming out of Teterboro because they busted an altitude. And and it's, you got to have the technology and you got to have really sharp professional crews that know exactly what they're doing with the technology. You know, I mean, these airplanes have incredible engines. They take off like a rocket ship. You can blow through an altitude in half a second if you're not paying attention. So, um, you know, making sure that, our pilots are trained and know what they're doing and feel confident in operating in that environment. You know, that's, that's probably what keeps me up at night the most is making sure that they feel confident in doing what they're doing. You optimistic about the industry moving forward? I think so. I think it's a good place to be. Um, Again, you have to decide, or I would advise a young person to decide, you know, what they're, what they're good at and what they like, you know, um, do they just want to fly? If they just want to fly, you know, work towards being an airline pilot. You know, if you want to do other things with your brain, uh, it's just different strokes for different folks. Um, you know, business aviation would be a great place to be. Uh, if that's your, if that's your mantra, if that's your personal outlook of, yeah, I like to fly in a little bit, but there's this whole other world of other stuff out there to, to look into um and and be good at then then business aviation would be a good place for you awesome i love it hey i appreciate you uh appreciate you coming on today i know uh you've been out of the office all week and uh 45 minutes on a thursday is a, a big commitment so i appreciate you coming on thanks for having me